go back to Psalm number 88 this morning. Psalm number 88. I grew up enjoying stories with happy endings. And I know I'm not weird in that way. That's true for all of us. Those are the kinds of stories we grew up reading, grew up watching on those animated films, and grew up having our parents read to us story time at school. We prefer the happy endings, and we still do. But many of us also remember when we first learned that not all stories have happy endings in the literature world and, and other things. That moment came for me, at least a significant moment of that in, that in that vein came to me in high school literature class. The first time I read Shakespeare's Macbeth. Somehow my English tutor thought it would be a great idea to pour into my brain a massive dose of misery by exposing me to this really horribly depressing story. How many of you have read or seen a performance of Macbeth? Okay, good. So most of you know where this is going, right? But for those of you who haven't had that privilege yet, I'm going to provide you with that same misery and depression a little bit by giving you the Notes version uh, and synopsis of Shakespeare's Macbeth. The Scottish nobleman Macbeth is foretold uh, that he is going to be king of Scotland, so encouraged by his wife to get that process rolling a little bit, Macbeth kills the king, becomes the new king, then kills more people out of paranoia. Civil war erupts to overthrow Macbeth, resulting in a lot more death. And in the end, pretty much everyone, including Lord and Lady Macbeth, die. Nice, right? That's pleasant. That was a time in my life that I learned of the existence of a particular genre of literary drama, the Shakespearean tragedy, and I'm not a fan. And for those of you who are literature teachers and you understand the immense value and positive impact that Shakespearean tragedies have on our world today, I would love to talk to you because I haven't learned that yet. <laughs> Shakespearean tragedy is basically a drama that starts sad and dark, it gets sadder and darker, and then it ends really sad and really dark. That's the Shakespearean tragedy. It's a very unhappy ending and it's depressing, right? I mean, why would somebody even write something like that? Actually, there's a very simple answer to that question. Because in a fallen world, life is very often like that, isn't it? Maybe not quite that bad. But life is hard. In a fallen world, it may not be quite so full of death and destruction. It may not have that never-ending spiral from bad to worse. And certainly there are some aspects of daily life that bring feelings of joy rather than sorrow and, and misery. But by and large, happy endings are found in fairy tales for a reason. Life is hard. It's full of troubles, sad events, grief. It's full of pain. It's full of suffering. And very regularly we experience the reality that there really is no happy ending to some stories that we are living. It's just more hardship, it's more uncertainty, it's more pain. When we read Psalm 88 a few minutes ago in our Scripture reading time, you probably thought, I hope that's not the end of the psalm. Surely there's more. But no, we read the whole thing. 
Psalm 88 reflects that reality perhaps more than any other portion of Scripture. I have selected a very depressing passage for us to study today, so you're welcome. This is another psalm of lament. We studied a psalm of lament a couple of weeks ago in Psalm number 6, in, in which the psalmist presents God with a formal complaint, if you will. And in Psalm 6, you probably recall uh, that David, in that case, the psalmist, was facing just the general troubles of life. And it was really encouraging to hear David express confidence in God, that God heard his lament and, and cling to the truth that God was the one who could deliver him, that God was the one who could help and save. And even though he was pretty down in some portions of that passage, there were moments where the light shone through. Do you remember? And many psalms echo that model of presenting lamentations to God, but then they park on the joy of God's presence and, and His care and His deliverance. And they always land well. They, they seem to end in a good spot. But today's psalm is unique in that none of that positive content is there. None of it. It doesn't write itself. The writer here who is uh, labeled as Heman, but we don't really know that much about him, he doesn't end by parking on the joyful counterpoints to his suffering. There's no positive note here whatsoever. There's no expression of hope. There's no change of mind where he comes to his senses and brings truth about God into the equation and says, I'm going to be okay because of this. There's none of that there. There's no hint of praise. There's no acknowledgement of God's goodness. There's no confidence expressed in God. In fact, it's just the opposite. God isn't described in this psalm in, affectional, in affectionate relational tones at all. He's the reason for all of this pain in this psalm. He's the adversary presented here. And it's all just trouble and grief and darkness and gloom. This is just the saddest psalm. There's no happy ending here. So our walk through this psalm this morning won't be nice and neat and verse by verse because in his grief, the psalmist is just kind of all over the place. And you may have noticed that. And that's actually, I think, intentional on the Holy Spirit's part because isn't deep grief and trouble and like that? It's incoherent. It can be confusing. It's disjointed, it's, it's often inconsolable, and then it's also perpetual. It can be long-term and prolonged. This is the picture of a life full of trouble. It's been his long-term companion. It's worn him down, and there's no end in sight. That's what we gather when we read this psalm. Have you felt that before? As life ever seemed like a never-ending story with no happy ending? Does your life or a particular situation in your life at times seem devoid of hope, lacking in reasons for joy? Do you feel like your affliction, whatever form it takes, has no end in sight? Have you ever felt like God is not actually your ally at all, but He's your adversary? He's your enemy? This psalm is powerful and impactful because it speaks to our lives and it speaks to our hearts at their very darkest. It visualizes how we often feel in the face of pain and hardship 
and deep depression, this psalm gets us at our very weakest. It's dire, it's dark, it appears to be hopeless, but in it we're going to see glimpses of the solution. In it we're going to see the hope that we have in the face of unrelenting trouble. And it really is this simple as we read and we study this psalm. The recourse to our unrelenting trouble is this, and the message of this psalm is this. It is that this psalm is a prayer. This psalm is a prayer. When you are afflicted by the prolonged and overwhelming hardships of life, take those feelings and those pains straight to God. In the persistent hardships of life, persistent prayer is the essential and only remedy and recourse that we have. I want to start by looking together through this psalm and see how this grieving, suffering believer in God describes the darkness of his situation, describes the pain he's going through. And in the, in, in the fullness of his message, we're going to see application for nearly every type of hardship we could possibly ever face in life, big or small. And again, the psalmist is pouring out his agonized heart to God here in very disjointed and at times incoherent way. So we're going to actually not nicely and neatly walk through the psalm verse by verse, but we're going to do a whole lot more jumping around than we usually do. And I did my best to put the verses in the outline with the corresponding point to aid in clarity. Hopefully that helps follow along a little bit here, but we're going to be jumping around a lot. And we'll cover the whole psalm, but it will feel a little disjointed. Again, I believe that's intentional on the Holy Spirit's part because that is how sorrow and pain feels. That is how immense hardship feels. The first main feeling, though, presented here as we try to categorize what the psalmist is thinking is that in a life full of persistent pain and affliction, your God feels far away from you. He feels far away from you. When we, read this, when we read the psalm earlier, you probably noticed all the different times that the psalmist talks about death. He feels like death is near, almost like it's stalking him. Facing, facing such agony both feels as horrible as death to him, and he actually feels like it's actually making him draw near to death. There's both a feeling for him and a, a certain coming reality for him because of what he is facing. God's distance then leaves you feeling spent. Spent. Empty. Completely void of life. At the end of your rope, almost like death itself. Look at verses 3 through 5. For my soul is full of troubles. My life draws near to Sheol. I am counted among those who go down to the pit. I am a man who has no strength. Like the ones set loose among the dead, like the slain that lie in the grave, like those whom you remember no more, for they are cut off from your hand. Spent. That verb full in verse 3 is literally sated or satiated. And we often use that word in a much more positive sense, right? It's the same word that is used elsewhere in the Old Testament many times in a, in a positive light to depict complete satisfaction. For example, I'm fully satisfied. I have all my needs met to the fullest. 
from my God. He has filled me up with blessings and joy and peace and His presence and all of those things. I am satiated by what my God provides. Same word, only here, it means the exact opposite. God has filled my life, yes, but He's filled it with woe and with affliction and with hardship and with sorrow. I'm filled to the brim with it. Sheol is the grave. He feels in verse 4 like he's going down into the pit, the place of the grave. He's headed down that path. He feels like he's dying. The terminology throughout the psalm has led some people to conclude that this affliction must have been some sort of horrible chronic and terminal physical disease. We don't know for sure. But whatever natural strength he may have had at one point, it's totally gone. It's been completely sapped because of this hardship. And he feels cast among the dead in verse 5. The use of the word slain there in verse 5 is an interesting choice of word. It seems to show that he isn't just simply wasting away and dying from natural causes. This is actually something he feels is being done to him. He feels as if he is being put to death. This, is, this feels like a slow execution for him. And it's at this point where the psalmist begins to point the finger at God in all of this. I'm remembered no more by you, he says. Just like the dead bodies were considered unclean in the Old Testament. You're killing me, and so therefore, I can't be close to you. Just like an unclean corpse had to be separated from God's people during Old Testament time and in God's law. I feel like I'm cast out of your presence. I'm thrust away because I'm like an unclean corpse. These, verse, these verses cry out, I'm as good as dead. I'm forgotten. Verses 10 and 11 continue this idea. Look at verses 10 and 11. Do you work wonders for the dead? Do the departed rise up to praise you? Is your steadfast love declared in the grave or your faithfulness in Abaddon? God, you want my praise. You've commanded me to serve you, and, and, I, and I have served you. I do serve you. You've commanded me to honor you, and I have worked diligently to honor you. So why do you want to bring me to the point where I'm close to death? If I'm dead, I can't serve you. If I'm dead, I can't praise you. What good am I to you dead, he says. And yet it feels like you're actively taking steps to get me there to turn me into a lifeless corpse. Why are you bringing me to that point with all this affliction and pain? God's distance leaves you feeling completely and totally spent. God's distance also leaves you feeling lost. Verses 6 and 12 speak of deep darkness in both verses. There's no relief in sight there's no logical reason for any of this. There's no reasonable ex explanation for what I'm experiencing. There's no clear way out. Look at verse 6. You have put me in the depths of the pit, in the regions dark and deep. You've put me here. This is your call. You have ordained this, God. I'm not dead yet, but it sure feels like a, a foregone conclusion at this point. The one who should be guiding me out instead is keeping me here. 
The one who should be leading me out to victory and deliverance is keeping me in the dark. Verse 12. Are your wonders known in the darkness? Or your righteousness in the land of forgetfulness? Where are you in this, God? You're not doing anything for me. You're working no wonders on my behalf. And it hurts, and I don't get it. I'm lost. His distance leaves you feeling spent, lost, and then forsaken. Look at verse 14. O Lord, why do you cast my soul away? Why do you hide your face from me? This is a rhetorical question. It expresses frustration, desperation over the fact that God is silent in response to all of this. Not only is he doing all of this to me, but he's silent in response. Why do you not care? Why do you not do something for me? It feels like you're making a mockery of my prayer and you're turning your face away from me. I'm cast away. You've turned away. I'm not simply forgotten. I'm actively forsaken. Actively forsaken. You have chosen this for me. Yes, our hurt and pain and suffering can get to the point where things are so dire and so prolonged and so hopeless that it seems that the darkness just will never lift. Deep discouragement and depression aren't just realities in psychologists' offices around the world. They're realities among God's people because life is like this. Even if we're not completely at our wit's end and completely hopeless, many of us have had the thought, where's the blessing? Where's the good supposedly reserved for those who believe in this God? I don't see much of that in my life. Where's the joy supposedly found in actively serving God? I don't experience that. I have no clue what He has next for me and the answer's aren't forthcoming at all. My life is just one uncertain situation after another, one after another. And wow, I'm just so, so tired. So, so spent. And there seems to be no end to the downward spiral. Whether we're in the darkest depths of despair or just in the middle of the daily hardships of life, we can identify with this, can't we? When we studied Psalm 6 a couple of weeks ago, you recall how David mentioned his enemies a lot in that psalm. Talked a lot about his enemies. He pled for God to deliver him and vindicate him before his, his, his enemies. And in ABF, we discussed in some cases who, who those enemies may be and, and the different forms that they take. It's a major theme throughout the psalms where the psalmist prays for God, for grace and help in the face of his enemies. Well, here in this psalm, none of those enemies are mentioned at all. It's not other people intent on harming him. It's not others intent on discrediting him. It's not the spiritual enemies he faces. Here he has one adversary in mind. Just one. It's the one responsible for all of this, and it's God in his mind. 
And here we find the second main feeling present, the second category of pain, if you will. The second thing that, that makes all of this so hard in the prolonged and overwhelming hardships of life, God doesn't just seem far away from you. He seems cruelly opposed to you. And this concept permeates this psalm. God is the source of all of this and the cause of all of this. Both my suffering in the first place and then the prolonged growing agony that comes from your apparent refusal to deliver me. He's not for me. He's against me. That's how the psalmist feels. Look at the striking picture from the natural world that we're given about how the psalmist is feeling. First of all, in verse 7 and then verses 16 and 17. Let's read those verses. Verse 7, your wrath lies heavy upon me and you overwhelm me with all your waves. Verses 16 and 17, your wrath has swept over me. Your dreadful assaults destroy me. They surround me like a flood all day long. They close in on me together. Waves, floods, being completely swamped with endless waves. A couple of weeks ago, we went on vacation with my extended family at the beach. And it was us and, and my parents, and then my sister in law with her two younger girls, my nieces. They're both five and under, and so they're still pretty hesitant to enter the surf at this point when they're playing at the beach. But as the week progressed, the older one in particular became more and more brave as she ventured deeper and deeper into the surf because my kids were way out there having the fun and, 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 and testing the limits of the rip current and all of that fun stuff that parents just are freaked out about, right? But eventually you kind of just assume everything's going to be fine. But she was slowly starting to get more courageous as she went out further and further into, into the surf and, and, and had started to enjoy playing out there with her older cousins. But she still had not experienced that one wave. You know the one I'm talking about? The wave, right? That one wave that is just big enough, it hits just at the right moment, often when your back is turned, it crests right over the top of you and it kind of like somersaults you into the next layer of ocean awareness, right? Where you're already, where you're, where you're understanding the power of those waves. So one of the last days of the week, she was getting bolder and bolder and also getting more and more distracted as she was playing with her cousins. And of course, being the wonderful uncle that I am, I found a vantage point up on the beach, sat on my beach chair, and just watched the waves come in and kind of waited for the fireworks a little bit because I knew it was coming. And then that wave rolled in. And I'm telling you, it was a perfect strike. It was amazing. And all, that, all the epic wipeout details and the mega dramatic response that comes from it, I'm never gonna come to the beach again, you know, all of that stuff. It was highly entertaining to me. And that was just one wave. That's just one wave. 
And the nature of waves is that they're relentless, right? They keep coming. They're powerful, and they swamp you. Is that not an accurate depiction of how suffering often feels? It's like waves, overwhelming waves, sweeping over you, relentlessly assaulting you, new daily hurdles to overcome, and you haven't been able to get over the previous one. They come too fast to counter and address. They're surrounding you. There's no escape from their relentless onslaught. His opposition feels like you're overwhelmed. It leaves you feeling absolutely overwhelmed. And as verse 16 says, it's daily and it's all day and it's one after the other. And it's your wrath that's being poured out on me, he says. At least that's how it feels. We usually think of God's wrath in terms of his response to sin and and his judgment on sin and his judgment on unrepentant people. But the concept here and the idea here is a little different. This isn't his justice. This word just simply means, this, this concept simply means fury. God, it seems like you're mad at me. I don't know why, but what else can explain this absolute barrage, this barrage of hardship? You overwhelm me with your waves. I'm drowning in the relentless onslaught of your troubles. What other effect does God's seeming opposition have? Well, look at verses 8 and 18, which are also parallel verses. You have caused my companions to shun me. You have made me a horror to them. I am shut in so that I cannot escape. Verse 18, you have caused my beloved and my friend to shun me. My companions have become darkness. His opposition leaves you lonely. Ever noticed that intense hardships often do result in loneliness? Perhaps friends don't know what to say, or spouses don't know how to help, and instead they stay away. Perhaps your affliction has resulted in distance from people you love for a significant period of time. Perhaps your affliction is such that others even shun you because of the stigma attached to what you're going through or because it's repulsive to them or they don't want to be associated with you as you go through this dark time. Or perhaps the nature of your hardship shows itself in the fact that you've never really experienced that kind of close human companionship at all. We don't know the nature of the psalmist's hardship, but they included the loss of something very dear to him. The loss or the absence of human companionship that he held so dear. And God made this happen. You have caused this to happen. You have made me a horror to my friends, to my loved ones, and now the only constant companion I have is this darkness surrounding me like he says in verse 18. And then finally, his opposition leaves you hopeless. Look at the first part of verse 9. My eye grows dim through sorrow. In ancient times, the eye was indicative of, it was like the gateway into someone's entire person. So this idea here is that his health and his vitality is wasting away. 
I'm weak beyond recovery. I'm wasting away, and it's not something I can recover from. And verse 15 adds more. Look at verse 15. Afflicted and close to death from my youth up, I suffer your terrors. I am helpless. Again, he emphasizes this prolonged, lifelong hardship. This isn't just something being experienced by someone in the twilight of life. From my youth up, I have experienced this, he says. I suffer terrors, and they're your terrors, God. You are the source of all of this, God. And I'm helpless, I'm hopeless. God, this is my life, and it's full of persistent and agonizing and relentless and painful trouble. That's not a pretty picture, is it? It's depressing. It's, it's true to life, isn't it? I was struck last week by the testimony of the Clobes last Sunday evening and their experience with the severe COVID lockdowns that they experienced in the Philippines. I felt terrible for ever having complained about anything that I experienced here stateside in comparison related to COVID. Strict lockdown for almost two years. Ministry interrupted, ministry interfered with feeling claustrophobic, stuck in a small apartment for months on end, no connection to their church family, constant oppression from draconian measures that seemed to change week in and week out, prolonged, persistent, lonely, no seeming ability to serve the God we came to serve, all locked up like that. And that's just one family. That's just one trial as huge as it was. What about chronic illness? Sudden tragedy, life-changing events with long-lasting effects for you or your family, long-term loneliness, massive and constant waves of responsibility at work, bearing a burden of knowledge that you can't share to anyone while everyone around you is misunderstanding what's going on. Financial setbacks at home. Unanswered questions. You're overwhelmed. You're spent. You're uncertain. You're lost. You have no idea where hope can be found. And worst of all, God, for some reason, ordained this for me. And knowing that it comes from Him, that's perhaps the hardest thing of all. But hidden in this psalm, We see the beginnings of the solution, the beginnings of the deliverance, the one recourse and the one hope that we have in such life-dominating trouble. And it's actually not hidden at all. It's right here in plain sight. It's the most basic reality about the psalm we have read. But it just gets lost in all of these details, those details that so often hold our gaze and hold our focus. But the Holy Spirit wants us to see it as the point, the remedy, the step that we must take because it's the step the psalmist took. Who is the psalmist talking to? You see, he's crying out in his agony to his God. He is taking his complaints to his God because there's so much he doesn't know 
But there is one thing he does know to do. I must cry out to my God. His prayer is full of accusations. It's full of blame. It's full of the question why over and over again. And it even contains some thinking that in his dire straits needs to be corrected with some objective truth. But it's a prayer. It's a prayer. Just by praying, he is acknowledging freeing, hopeful, and victorious truths about God that even in his pain and even in his desperation and in his despair, those truths will point him toward hope. Point him toward deliverance. Point him toward sustaining grace, even if that deliverance never comes in this life. You see, the fact that this broken follower of God prays at all makes all the difference. And it makes all the difference for you and me as well. The last few verses we have yet to look at in this psalm reveal to us that even when your God may feel far away from you, even when he may feel cruelly opposed to you, your God is the source of hope for you. Look at verses 1 and 2 and 9 and 13, the verses we haven't yet read. Verses 1 and 2, O Lord, God of my salvation, I cry out day and night before you. Let my prayer come before you. Incline your ear to my cry. Verse 9, every day I call upon you, O Lord. I spread out my hands to you. Verse 13, But I, O Lord, cry to you. In the morning, my prayer comes before you. This psalmist knows enough to pray. And that smallest act of faith provides this window through which he can begin to see the hope and the solution to his despair. If not, the deliverance from the trouble. The path to God's sustaining grace. First of all, this psalmist example here, even though it's veiled, is vital for us to see his prayer, calls on you and me to remember who God is. Remember who God is. Look at the first two words in verse 1. O Lord. You see that the word Lord is capitalized in most of your translation. That name, Lord, is a translation of the name Yahweh. You see that name in verse 9 and verse 13 and verse 14 as well. This is the Old Testament personal name of Israel's God, the psalmist's God. And the name is is rich and, and multifaceted in its meaning, but at its root it simply means He is or I am. This is the self-existent one. The psalmist, first of all, is remembering that He is. He does exist. He is present. He is in control. He is fully sovereign. And therefore, He is not distant. Which was the assumption in our first point. He is not distant. Instead, He is active in your life. For you. He has not forsaken you. He's not distant. But that's not all that Yahweh means. Yahweh was the name He gave His people to know Him by. He provided it and reminded them of it in the darkest times in their history 
throughout the Old Testament. And through His preserved Word, He reminds us of it today too. This is His covenant promise-keeping name. The I Am, the self-existent One, the One who is. He is your God. And you are His. He is your covenant-keeping God. And that means He is faithful to you. He is not opposed to you. He is not attacking you. Despite the evidence we saw in the second point. Because He's Yahweh. He's faithful. He only ever works for your good. And you know that. Enough to pray. Look back at verse 1. God has given another title there. God of my salvation. Why does the psalmist even bother praying here? Because he knows this God is in the business of delivering. He saves in sending His Son, Jesus Christ. He actually saved you from His wrath. He didn't reserve you for it. He delivered you from it. Transforming you from an enemy, from an adversary, into an adopted child. And you know that. Enough to pray. In providing daily infinite grace, He continues to deliver and sustain you. And through your hardships, He grows and conforms and transforms you into a vessel that glorifies Him more effectively through each hardship. He tells us that's why things are hard. And you know that. Enough to pray. And though those hardships may be prolonged, His plan is to bring you eternally to His presence where you will enjoy painless bliss forever with Him. And you know that. Enough to pray. Remember who He is and then finally remember that He hears. Even when it seems like He doesn't, He does. It's true. We can see that implied in in verses 1 and 2 and 9 and 13 in in a couple of creative and powerful ways. First of all, He always hears. In those verses, you noticed how the psalmist talks about praying day and night, every day, morning and evening, moaning and crying out to God. And every single time, Every single moan, every single prayer that is either silent or cried out through tears, every single one was heard. And he hears yours too. And mine. He always hears. But there's still more implied in the very agonizing words prayed here. Look back at verse 2. Let my prayer come before you. Incline your ear to my cry. He always hears and He longs to hear. He longs to hear. The sovereign of the universe in the middle of holding all of creation together, in the midst of sovereignly ordaining His master plan for all of the ages is not too busy to welcome your prayers into His presence. And he doesn't just casually do that. He's not just honoring a promise he made a long time ago because he has to. No. He inclines his ear to your cry. He is ready and willing and eager to hear the cries of the children he loves. 
Yes, it brings Him glory when you do that. But He also loves to answer when you do because He loves you so much. And His love for you lasts a whole lot longer than any hardship. Do you believe that? If so, then pray. When life overwhelms, take it straight to God. Because these things are true. No matter how prolonged the hardship, no matter how prolonged the agony, God's people, you and me, never need to give up hope that God will answer and give us reason to praise Him. Whether that's through relief and earthly deliverance, of the hardship or sustaining grace in the middle of it all the way to heavenly glory in His presence. So in your loneliness, cry to Him. In your pain, cry to Him. When you don't understand, cry to Him. In your exhaustion, cry to Him. In your deepest struggle with despair and doubt and emptiness, cry to Him. Even in the deepest Hopelessness. God alone remains the one to whom you must run. He helps because He hears. Let's pray. Father, thank You for a psalm that we can identify with so clearly. This psalm, despite its darkness and its uh, and its deep sadness is so helpful for us because this at times is life. Life is hard. But Father, we are grateful that we have one to whom we can come and cry to and bring our burdens to, bring our complaints to because you always hear and you alone are God our God. You are not far away. You are not in opposition. We are your children. And you long to hear your broken people cry to you. Father, may we, by your grace, take that step in the day to come and that it would initiate other steps of trust, that it would be the first step toward deliverance from despair, that that first step would be what continues to grow our trust and our reliance upon you no matter what you have given us to face. Father, we are thankful for who you are and that you always long to hear. You are a good God and we praise you. Even in our darkness, we praise you. In Jesus' name, amen.